In the great words of Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton, what did I miss? I'm back <laughs> on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And I am thankful to everybody who filled in while I was gone. There was lots of news to talk about. And Leila Tassi gets a special thanks for playing host and producer, which is an incredibly tedious job. I think the first day, Laura, it took her about four hours, but she got it down to about an hour at the end of the week. Not bad. Yes, yeah, she Definitely, definitely got better. She said the first time she kept redoing all the first steps over and over again. So she got very proficient very quickly just by practice. Yeah, she did call me on the first day in a blind panic because she had started like four times and kept getting stuck on one spot. But while she was talking to me, she went, oh. Oh, I see it. There it is. Never mind. <laughs> and, and but that was the only time she had to call you all week. So I think that's pretty Yeah, good. no, it was it really, really well done. So let's get going. We got some things to talk about today with prosecutors, including Cuyahoga County's Michael O'Malley, saying they won't prosecute abortion crimes. Reporter Bob Higgs took a look at prosecutorial discretion. We heard from people after O'Malley's announcement that he should prosecute every crime he knows about. And we all know that's not possible. Anybody that's paid attention to the courts knows prosecutors have to prioritize. They always have. Courtney, what did Bob Yeah, so Bob talked to some experts, and and what he came away with is obviously prosecutorial discretion is baked into our justice system. It's kind of a fundamental piece here. So that notion that you should prosecute all crimes all the time – that's really not how our system's structured. So so basically what we have here is O'Malley. He's one of 90 or so prosecutors across the country who signed on to this pledge to, to not prosecute violations of abortion laws here in the wake of the overturning of Roe. So basically the argument there is that prosecuting those crimes would shift focus away from serious real things and it would divide communities and it would erode people's trust in the justice system. So that's kind of where O'Malley and his fellow prosecutors are coming at here. But one thing that you know Bob found, which I thought was interesting, is that we've increasingly seen more progressive local prosecutors choosing not to enforce more conservative GOP state house-backed laws in the past couple years. Think about things like mask mandates. Think about things like um, you know those controversial trans person bathroom bills that that we saw circulating a handful of years ago. It seems like there's this trend Bob has found of local, more liberal DAs choosing not to pursue these more stringent conservative laws. Yeah, before we go any further, I'm a little rusty coming back. I didn't introduce everybody. That's Courtney (laughs) Estafi. I'm also here with Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin, and I'm Chris Quinn. What what surprised me in that story, Courtney, was – I think it was Jonathan Enton was describing this. uh, He's a case uh, law professor was describing this as a relatively new trend. And I I've been around a long time and I've seen prosecutors not prosecute on laws a long time. I mean, how many times have we written about laws that were on the books that are so antiquated that nobody knows they exist and no crimes are brought involving those. I, I was surprised at the description of it being something Yeah, new. I kind of, that caught my attention as well. But, but <clears throat> the professor kind of suggested that most of the time, 
you see prosecutors coming out saying, or like historically, he was saying, you see prosecutors coming out saying, I'm going to prosecute more robberies. I'm going to go after gun crimes more forcefully. And what we have here is the opposite of that, the pulling back uh, on prosecutions. But he's, you know, this professor said, generally, that's what you see prosecutors saying, not the other way around. Well, let's play to Laura's repeated theme. Is this because of gerrymandering? Are we are we in a place? No, I'm serious about this. We have gerrymandered legislatures across the land, including Ohio in a big way, that pass ridiculous laws over and over. How many times have we written about the things that come through them and the ones that don't get passed? If ridiculous laws are being passed that largely appeal in Ohio to rural areas, is it a surprise that urban prosecutors were electing by people who do not believe what the legislators in, in Columbus believe would say, I'm not doing that? Is gerrymandering the cause of this? You know, I trend? think that's a great point. And, and, and the states that Bob did single out, Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, you can see that pattern playing out, perhaps more conservative state centers of power and more liberal cities weighing in on those state rules. So that 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 strikes me as probably you know well think about it too if mike o'malley prosecuted an abortion crime do you think he would have any chance of being reelected in this county just right no and way. that's what the that's what the professors told bob as well like yes there's a fundamental here's how we're going to do our job kind of angle to this from the prosecutor's point of view. But it's also all political. What do your voters want? What do your voters expect from you? And if you've got that blue base, why wouldn't you cater to your constituents? Yeah, Bob done a nice job on that story. If you haven't seen it, check it out on cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Foundation is building a huge new home for itself in Cleveland's Midtown neighborhood, but it's actually going to build a second big building in a major effort to improve the neighborhood that is moving into a depressed neighborhood. And Ron Richards says that's all intentional. Big story by Steve Litt, published in The Plain Dealer and online today. Laura Johnston, what's it all about? Yeah, this is really cool. So we all knew about the big thing in Huff that is opening soon, but the second one is for 12 acres, $400 million, and, and it's going to be as part of this high-tech innovation district that it's planning halfway between downtown and University Circle and the Midtown area that for years kind of languished. And this is, I, the idea is to show how racially segregated communities could be uplifted by closer ties to leading institutions, not just giving out grants, but really you know, putting your money where your mouth is and where you're located. And so this wants to be a community hub, a healthcare outreach center, a job and career development site, and a place where minority entrepreneurs can ac access capital and expertise. It's also supposed to be fun. Part of the footprint's reserved for a black-owned microbrewery and a music club modeled on Leo's Casino, which is a long-demolished landmark venue at Euclid and East 75th Street. It hosted the Supremes, Ray Charles in the in the 1960s. So there's a lot of people already signed on to this. Big names, Case Western Reserve, University Hospital, Hospitals, Cleveland Institute of Art, Jumpstart, the Economic Community Development Institute, and uh, Highland Software, which, you know, is big in the suburbs in Westlake, really going to be part of this footprint down uh, in Midtown. Well, the genius about this to me is that you, your foundation that's dedicated to 
ending or reducing poverty and you've been in an ivory tower in the middle of downtown Mm -hmm. and ron richards says i want this to be a model for foundations across the country get into the depressed neighborhood be there use your wealth to develop that area and bring prosperity and already there's there's pressure on the Gund Foundation. Right, to- I saw that, and May- Mayor Bibb is calling them out, basically saying, "I got some great land in the southeast part of the city that we could we could make a deal on." <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's great. United Way, all of them, get out of downtown, go out right. into the poverty-stricken areas that you say you're trying to help. I I salute Ron Richard when they first announced building the the big building for themselves, it, it felt a little bit like a vanity project. You know, let's build a gigantic building that has our name on it. But it's really not. It's it's something that is aimed at developing the neighborhood and showing that they mean what they say in their mission statement. Uh, loaded story by Steve Litt today. Lots of great information yeah, in it. Really detailed plans. And this is going to be announced later today by Cleveland Foundation. Uh, The Cleveland Institute of Art is going to occupy two floors with a high-tech interactive media lab. Highland Software is planning its first off-site community education center to help the kids in the area discover pathways to careers in in technology. Jumpstart's going to have the biggest spot, and they want to foster new locally owned businesses, connect them with investors, and train them. So, you know, we talk about all these times all these jobs are open we don't have the qualified workforce you know this is going to get into the neighborhoods and give kids a place to go give training to the people who live there and you're connected with some of the leading corporations in cleveland at your doorstep which is really cool and this is this area i mean i don't live on that side of town anymore but i did for nine years and commuted on chester every day right and how many vacant parcels of land how many just gray buildings there are obviously it's gotten a lot better with the health zone but this is going to be part of this revitalization all the way from downtown all the way to university circle to make this very green and welcoming noaka wants to build a 16 million project million dollar project called dream 66 rebuilding the street as a complete green street for cleveland so it's all part of the same momentum that could make this the next hot area in cleveland which is really cool You are listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, I listened to a couple of the episodes last week, and you had one of the sharpest insights, and I want to chew on it a little bit. With the state already riding in to rescue Cuyahoga County's inexplicable failure to provide safety for children in its care, did Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish finally, days into the crisis, offer up his own thoughts and plans? Well, he did, but it was during a weekend meeting and no media was invited. But, you know, we did manage to get the story and he hasn't addressed this publicly. But they did meet. Actually, it was Friday. Budish met with um, Department of Child and Family Services workers, including the head of the AFSCME Local 1746, Gail Elmore, and also the head of the County Department of Health and Human Services, David Merriman. So they talked about, you know, things they can do. And Elmore, you know, the president of the union said, well, it's a start. But she said to the county that we want to know that you're actually working on things. There were some other staff 
at this meeting, some of them said the conversation felt offensive to them. They felt that the county downplayed some of the issues and how long they've been occurring. And they felt that the meeting might have been just been lip service. So different opinions about how it go. But there were some things offered. Booters is assigning a round-the-clock sheriff's deputy to the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center. They're working to establish a drop-in center while kids are awaiting placement. They're encouraging reporting of violence and they want staffers to file charges if there are violent acts. And um, a county spokesman spokeswoman responded to cleveland.com about these actions to be taken, but the statement they gave us didn't really address those. So we really had to dig for this. Well, you had mentioned in the conversation last week, just a reminder that not all these kids were taken because they were under threat at home, but because they were incorrigible and actually were a threat to their families, that these are not all kids that are in need of protections. They're often misbehaving teenagers and anybody that's raised teenagers is worried about when it goes like this i i which i thought was an important thing the the county has custody of a whole bunch of kids many of whom are misbehaving and not listening to direction and racing out and it's a very challenging job especially when as you all mentioned you're down 200 social service positions here's the thing that i i had trouble with this story on the, the, the people go into a county council hearing and they drop this bombshell that kids are being prostituted and kids are being raped and that, that there's danger and nobody's paying attention. And nobody had any idea about this at the county. And there wasn't a whole lot of evidence presented. I, and what struck me mm. is Michael O'Malley is the county prosecutor and has a robust ICAC unit that spends all of its time looking for people that are trying to pay children for sex and catches them left and right, priests and rabbis and firefighters and and all sorts of people. If you're a social worker and you know that a kid in your custody has been taken out to be prostituted, don't you don't you have a responsibility to go to Mike O'Malley and say, hey, we got a problem. These kids are being taken out and people are paying for sex with them. That's what that whole unit does is go after adults having sex with children. But I didn't get any the impression there was any evidence of it presented. And the one rape that they talked about didn't happen in the building and it was reported and investigated. Where's the evidence this is actually happening? Well, I think that that's what the rapid response team from the state is looking into. One of the things they wanted to investigate was whether there have been previous reports that either went to the county or the state about this behavior. Because you're right, it was a bombshell. You know, it's it just kind of came out of nowhere. So we have to see what the pattern is. But um, I think one of our reporters sat outside. Laura, didn't one of them sit outside the center and, and saw something going on? Yes, it was just happenstance that Caitlin Durbin, who's reporting on the story, she's the county reporter, drove there to take a picture, and that she got there and she saw a girl run out of the center and sit on the hood of a car. It looked, appeared like she knew the person in there, and then caseworkers coming out trying to coax her back inside. Uh, obviously, we don't know the details of, of what was going on here or the context, but it, something happened. Well, except in your discussion last week, you said that the, they thought it was a worker at the place and she knew that person. What I'm getting at is that th- th- these workers go into a county council meeting, they drop this, that it's been going on for, for a long, long time. And yet 
no one knows about it. And, and my feeling is if there were really were children being prostituted and you're a social worker and you know about that, this should not come as a surprise months later. The, the prosecutor, mm-hmm. the police should have had reports about this a long time ago. If Michael Malley were told that the children in the county's care were being taken out and prostituted, I guarantee he would investigate that. I know Michael Malley, that's something that he would take seriously, but he seems as surprised by this as everybody else. How can that yeah. be? Yeah, so I, th- I think as the investigation goes on, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's a pattern that's emerging here. But Budish did encourage them to report. It sounds like they're not doing that. And they didn't even do that then. They just went to council. They didn't report it, you know, directly to the authorities. So that's kind of interesting. But one of the staffers in this Friday meeting did make a point. She says, why are we charging th- these youth if, if it's a mental health or a behavioral problem? Why are they even being, you know, they, they're not even in the right facility to begin with yeah there just just has a lot of unanswered questions and laura you had mentioned that nobody's answering the 696 kids hotline but we know from our own experience on the education project we're doing that when when teachers learned of a sexual abuse case the county was right on it i mean there was it was an immediate response so right i don't think it's like a never staffing i think there are times when it's not being staffed and i know that we had reporters that were calling the main number to get to the building and we're getting no response. Uh, so I, I don't think it's all the time. I think it's it's intermittent and you don't know when that that gap is going to be happening. I, I it'll be interesting to see just how big a bombshell this is. And I suspect the reason Budish was quiet about it for a couple of days is he was probably asking these same questions. How can this have been going on this long and nobody's brought it up and nobody's filed crime reports. More reporting to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Council President Purnell Jones wrote an op-ed printed in the Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com over the weekend, trumpeting the use of what we call slush funds and claiming there is more transparency with how they are spending that than in similar funds elsewhere. Courtney, though, did he address how the $66 million fund could be created without a single public discussion? How is that transparent? No, he did not specifically address that, Chris, but he did have one sentence in there that did seem to flick at the origin of this idea. So I think it's worth sharing with readers specifically what he said where, about where this idea came from. County Executive Armin Budish and I sought to distribute these funds in a swift and responsible manner and we agreed that every district should receive at least six million in grants to ensure all residents would see a benefit. So that's like, that's a nugget. That's a new nugget we have, I guess, about how this this slush fund plan emerged. It was between Jones and Budish, apparently. But it, 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 to your point, it doesn't, it doesn't get at this broader concern that individual council members are directing money and other council members, while they will vote, and, and they, they will cast votes, they're bound to pretty much vote in favor of what their colleagues support, else their colleagues not support their own projects. So while it may be technically legal, at least according to the prosecutor's office, it, 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 it seems to still go against the spirit of the charter. Yeah, uh, but, but let's get back to it. Pernell Jones as council president and Norman Budish cannot get together and decide to spend $66 million. That's not the way the government works. If I were on the county council 
and Pernell Jones came and said, hey, I'm giving you each $6 million to spend. I would think if I were a responsible member of the council, I'd say, shouldn't we be having a discussion about that in public so that everybody knows what we're thinking and what went into it? Because that's a council consensus that is needed. Pernell Jones and Armin Budish don't have the authority to just do that. It's bizarre that that's what they're claiming. They got together, decided that's how they'd spend it, and all the county council members just went, oh, good, sounds good to me. How was it communicated to them? Was it by letter? Did he meet with them individually? There's When he talks about being transparent, big hole there. This is not transparent. And, yeah, they'll bring up each project, but we did hear from Eugene Kramer, one of the authors of the charter after the this news came out that it wasn't illegal. Yeah, what this is a really interesting response. Um, always love to hear what Kramer has to say. I'm, I'm going to read two sentences verbatim because I thought they were so strong. You know, Kramer told us that once the slush fund, fund systems established, council members need not be concerned about exercising collective judgment about the needs of the county as a whole. You know, he said individual members are then free to spend their share of the money in a manner that's designed to provide maximum political benefit and not necessarily in a way that'll do the most good for the public. No one who voted on this charter envisioned a day where you'd have a ward system with a ward leader doling out the cash. That was never what this government was supposed to be about. And I know there were questions raised about Mike O'Malley. He works for the county. Dave Lambert works for Mike O'Malley. Was this a cook decision? I have to say I've known Dave Lambert a long time. I don't think I've ever seen him make a decision based on anything but what he thinks is right. So I, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. If he says he believes that this doesn't violate the letter of the charter, that that's probably true. It does violate the spirit yes. of it. You are listening to Today in Ohio. When Peloton announced it would build a new factory in western Ohio, Greater Cleveland wondered, why not here? Of course, that's defunct and not happening. When Intel announced a plans for a giant microchip factory outside Columbus, we all groused, why not here? What is Team Neo doing so that the next time there's a shot at getting a big business, Northeast Ohio will be in the running? Lisa. So Team Neo is looking to hire somebody that will go out and investigate, you know, areas around the greater Cleveland area. And they hope to identify six to 10 large sites that would be available for development. This is part of a June proposal that they sent out to find this new person. So the goal is to find about three to five sites each in Cuyahoga and Summit counties, anywhere from 10 to 30 acres. They want to have the, you know, identify these sites, identify any issues there may be, whether it's environmental remediation or trying to, uh, you know, assemble a few pieces of land to have a larger tract of land. So this is way, because we are, we're kind of landlocked. There's a lot of uh, vacant industrial plants that are just sitting there decaying that could be removed and, and used for development. So this is a way to find these sites so we can be ready the next time a Peloton comes knocking. Yeah, the, but part of our problem, and I, I don't really think the story addressed this, is a lot of these companies want gigantic tracts of land, and we don't have those up here. That's true. That's true. I mean, Intel, I think, was on 200 acres or so. So they know that, that in some rural areas that they can get some larger tracts of land for big plants like like an Intel plant. So they, they're, they're looking at that as well. But we don't really have those here in Northeast Ohio. So those would be more in the rural areas.
So what this is aimed at is more the mid-level companies, the companies that might serve Intel or might serve an auto factory or something. It's good to get it done because the, this, these things happen very quickly. And so a company comes knocking. If you don't have sites ready to go, they go knocking elsewhere. It's a good move, but I don't think we're ever going to be in competition for the whales. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have a lot riding on an honest and thorough investigation into the Akron police killing of Jalen Walker. Laura, what goes into an investigation like this? Basically, it's going to hinge on whether police believe there was an immediate threat and whether Jalen Walker was reaching for a gun when he ran from his car after the six-minute vehicle pursuit. So two national experts are raising questions over the dozens of times eight officers fired at Walker. Obviously, that's going to be a huge part of the investigation that the Bureau of Criminal Investigation under the Office of Attorney General Dave Yost is working on. It's actually rare that Akron has handed out judgment to an outside agency. Um, they're taking this seriously. Yost said the investigation will take time. They pledged to be thorough and fair. And there is national attention here. President Biden last week said the Justice Department is following it. He said that when he was speaking in Cleveland. I don't know if there's a timetable, but it, I don't expect this anytime soon. I, I was surprised that the, the two experts both said that the number of shots was shocking to them because when you watch uh -huh. that video, it happens very, very quickly. Very so, quickly. You know, you've got police officers that have been following him. They believe a shot was fired. There's video that seems to confirm that, but the investigation will turn that out. When, when it stops, he gets out of the car and a ski mask runs and the police, according to Akron, saw him reach to his waistband and that's when they, they open fire. Uh, it, and when you watch it, it's, it's lightning fast. And I, I just, this is a tough investigation. The mm -hmm. number of bullet, well, the number of wounds on his body uh, is staggering. But the experts said once he's on the ground, you shouldn't be shooting anymore that he was right. down and they did keep shooting as he rolled on the ground but is it really going to come down to a matter of those two or three seconds where they go longer that this is the crux of the case I, I don't know i think that's where the crux of the anger is coming right it's the the number 60 keeps being tossed out which we don't know is for sure that's you know coming from the family's attorney of 60 shots and jalen walker and i think that's where a lot of this outrage that's been fueled over the weeks and there's been protests in akron and i think that's it's hard to stomach right that's what makes this video so hard to watch and there are questions about the department's policy on foot chases we had a story last week we talked about it that the police policy on the vehicle pursuit was followed but we don't really that we don't really know about the policy manual on the foot pursuits because that's not in their policy manual and should somebody have been in charge i mean it's like everybody was surrounding and firing you do hear someone saying cease fire but if you have everybody shooting into the middle it does seem extreme and i think that's where a lot of the questions are. There are 13 body camera videos from multiple vantage points. That's going to help investigators create a 3D model of the scene to show exactly where each officer was standing in relation to Jalen Walker. They're probably not going to look at every single shot, but the ones that were fatal. Okay. I, I, I would not want to be the investigator on this. This is a tough case. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The fifth variant of COVID's 
Omicron strain is, like all previous strains, the most contagious yet. And numbers are rising again across the nation. Courtney, you're fresh off of a COVID infection yourself. What's the status of COVID in Northeast Ohio? It sounds like you got it when numbers yeah, are Yeah, if well. I'm any indication, it is still alive and well in Cuyahoga County, despite our current green status, which indicates low transmission. Most of Northeast Ohio is green status. That's down from medium levels of transmission last week, but um, I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical. I tested positive um, last week, and there was, like, no, like, with previous tests I'd taken. This is the first time I tested positive. Previous tests, you'd, you'd phone in or you'd convey your results somehow, but the one I got from the federal government, there was no way to convey my test results. So no one recorded my number anywhere, and that's not contributing to the rating. So I just got to wonder how many other folks out there are in the same boat, uh, infected, but not necessarily being reflected in our joint numbers. Well, elsewhere in the world, it's it's rising, and it's that fifth variant, the fourth variant, too. You're seeing it a little bit in the U.S. It feels almost like we were we're at the place we were last summer feeling like oh we're all good it's all good and then delta came in and pretty much ended the summer we we could be in the same situation now you got hit pretty hard was it <laughs> people think about this now oh it's the common cold you, you get sick for a couple of days you're up um, yeah i was feel? pretty knocked out for a couple of days there I, like i said it was my first time having it so maybe that contributed but i slept and slept and slept throbbing headache quite nauseous, some other random weird symptoms here and there. It, it took me down for a few days. Are you largely over it? Or are you still feeling Um, I, I think I'm largely over it. I feel good to be back at work today. I, I Maybe a little headspaciness, just a, w- a wee bit still, but I think I'm on the mend. And that part I was grateful for. It was a pretty quick turnaround of a handful of days, and I'm back on my feet. I saw a story over the weekend that was critical of prominent officials like the transportation secretary, whose name I can't pronounce, and uh, Dr. Fauci, who, when they tested positive, said, I won't be in the office, but I'm working from home. And people have slammed him saying, you know what? Rest is needed to get over this thing. By you saying you're going to work from home, you're putting the burden on regular people to feel like they have to work from home and you need to sleep, sleep, sleep. Sounds like you did that, Courtney. You took the Yeah, I think I could have pushed myself and done the work from home thing, but I'm really grateful I didn't because I feel much closer to 100% than I think I would have otherwise. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't either because then I would feel really guilty. (laughs) So you're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for a Monday. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Courtney, you're here all week, right? Because Layla's off. All right. Well, I'll talk to you all again on Tuesday.